Welcome everyone. Um, I'm glad you're here. My name is Terry Hart and I am the Manager of Workforce Diversity with BJC Healthcare. And I'd like to welcome you to our performance today of Breaking Ice. I just wanted to um, share, actually there's coffee still, if you guys need coffee, there's more out there now. I'm sitting in a brightly lit multi-purpose room facing a wide, unadorned stage with an audience of 200 or so staff at the Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. After Terry Hart's introduction of the theater group Breaking Ice, we've all been sitting here watching five actors in black t-shirts and black pants moving rapidly around the stage. Every few seconds, one of them stops, faces the audience, and shouts out what sounds like a news headline. Healthcare is the fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. Disparities in quality of care are not getting smaller. Over time, the gap between whites and people of color has either stayed the same or worsened. American Indian women are five times more likely to receive late or no prenatal care than white women. African Americans across all income levels experience poor health outcomes. About 19% of transgender people report we refuse medical care, and 2% have been violently assaulted in a doctor's office. According to the Columbia University Psychological Bulletin, stigma, prejudice, and discrimination create hostile and stressful social environments that lead to mental health issues. Even air is racist, pollutants causing health hazards in predominantly non-white neighborhoods. The future of workplace diversity is here. Millennials will comprise 50% of the global workforce by the year 2020. With nearly 200,000 people transitioning out of military service each year, veterans are a rich source of workforce talent. Hispanic participation in the workplace continues to grow, with Latinx workers accounting for more than 15% of the U.S. workforce. Organizations which hire people with disabilities see greater retention and innovation. Cultural demographic shifts are changing the business of healthcare. By the year 2050, there will be no ethnic or racial majority in the U.S. Census says U.S. workplace becoming increasingly more diverse. An advantage for many, a but challenge for some. The five actors disperse into the wings. Shortly, one of them, a tall middle-aged white man, returns to center stage and pivots towards a slightly shorter black man as he approaches. Hello, sir, can I help you? Yes, um... Is this the Hawthorne room? Uh, yes, this is the Hawthorne room. But there's a meeting going on in there right now, sir. Is there something else I can help you with? The black gentleman purses his lips and takes a deep breath. Well, actually, um, I'm supposed to be at that meeting. I'm the keynote speaker, Michael White. The other man stares at Mr. White as though he's just appeared out of nowhere. His tight mouth blooms into a big O. Oh, you're Michael White! Yes. I apologize, sir. We spoke on the phone. I just didn't know you were... Uh, yeah, on the phone, you didn't sound like you were... <laughs> that little scene with the cringy gut-punch finish is just a small taste of the groundbreaking theater-based diversity, equity, and inclusion program called Breaking Ice that was presented to a gathering of senior hospital administrators and managers at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri in the fall of 2019. Barnes Jewish is one of 12 hospitals in the St. Louis region that comprise the BJC healthcare system. The Breaking Ice troupe of five actors, C. Michael Menge, Noel Raymond, Mikkel Sapp, Thalas Santesteban, Adam Wisner, and assistant director Ana Sofia Villanueva have traveled from their home base at Pillsbury House and Theater in Minneapolis 
to share six performances for nearly a thousand BJC healthcare staff over the coming week. I've joined them here to document their residency as a part of my ongoing research on the arts and the human struggle with difference. This Change the Story episode and the one that follows will tell the story of my time with Breaking Ice and share some of what I learned about the program's history and impact and its innovative approach to helping workplaces large and small to, quote, cultivate courageous dialogue around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Breaking Ice is one of dozens of programs and services developed by Pillsbury House in service to the 30,000 souls who live in Minneapolis's Powderhorn and Central neighborhoods. While PH&T, as it's sometimes called, has a national reputation for its hybrid arts-based approach to community development, Breaking Ice is unique in its reach and influence outside the Twin Cities. The program, which began as a DEI pioneer in Minneapolis, is also one of Pillsbury's longest-running. Since its inception in the early 1990s, the company has performed in 10 states to more than 200 organizations and 40,000 people. Actress, director, and cat-herding administrator Noelle Raymond has helped lead Pillsbury for nearly three decades. My name is Noelle Raymond. I use she and her pronouns. Currently, my title is Senior Director of Arts and Culture for Pillsbury House and Theater, Pillsbury United Communities. I've held many titles over my 28-year tenure here, which just means I do a lot of different things and now a collection of things that is unrecognizable from where I started. The beginning of Breaking Ice goes way back to the 60s. It was a the seed of the idea started with the living stage in D.C. and ultimately became a company out of New York called Thunder in the Light, which was started by Olympia Dukakis. And one of the people who participated in that at that time was Ralph Remington, who's the founding artistic director of Pillsbury House and Theater. And so when he came to Pillsbury House and Theater, he brought the seed of this idea to create performance collage is sort of how I refer to Breaking Ice, to help people literally to break the ice. It's called Breaking Ice for a reason, right? To help people talk about things that are difficult. And then I started here, I think two or three years after Ralph started. And so we had a very strong focus on undoing racism based on the People's Institute model. The People's Institute for Survival and Beyond did these undoing racism workshops and we were deeply steeped in their practice. And so we were using racism equals prejudice plus power definition and attempting to illuminate what racism looks like in behavior among people in a context like a school. And then having that conversation and defining what racism is and around power and privilege. Back in St. Louis, the small breaking ice company seems to be everywhere at once, as the performance collage Noel described is filling the stage with quick hit skits that combine humor and straight talk with situations and language that, given all the nodding heads, is clearly very familiar to many members of the audience. Right now, a black man and a white woman stand side by side, drinking coffee. Hey, Nancy, how did you think about our sure. You killed it. I mean, how, I even forgot who a black one wore up there. The man steps back. In an instant, his face moves from shock to question. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, what do you mean? You, you can see. You can see. No, 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 no. I mean that as a compliment. 
Right. I just don't understand how that is a compliment. I'm sorry. Um, it's just, I just don't see color. That's, that's all. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I get it. Well, you know, actually, there's some specialists here who can work on that with the food to fix all that. <laughs> As the nervous laughter subsides, a new scene begins. What about that meeting, right? All those racist comments flying around. I was sitting behind you just willing you to say something. Why didn't you say something? Well, if he was as equally offended, why didn't you say something? Throughout its long history, Breaking Ice has largely relied on word of mouth to find its audiences. So it makes sense that their initial shows tended to be local and community-based, reflecting Pillsbury's natural constituency. It was kind of all over the map, but mostly like smallish community groups and high school students <laughs> and higher ed. We did one for an audience of policy fellows at the Humphrey School. We often would perform outside in parks and things, which was really difficult because nobody could hear. While they often performed at spaces that typically didn't accommodate theater, these each one teach one kind of referrals meant that their sponsors and audiences had a better sense of what the program was all about. It also gave the company the trust-based relationships they needed to develop their unique approach to storytelling, which reflected the culture and stories specific to each of the organizations and neighborhoods that hosted them. Kurt Kwan, who joined the company in the early 2000s and currently serves as the Breaking Ice Artistic Director, describes the labor-intensive process that ended up producing a customized script for every show. We used to do site visits for all of our clients and we would take the entire acting company and we would have a meeting there and we would walk through all the programs and the physical structure of it. So you get that sort of sensory experience of what it feels like, smells like, what are the ins and outs. One of the things I personally love about doing Breaking Ice is I get to learn about all of these workplaces and really listen to What's happening? What are you doing all day, every day? Where are you meeting people? What spaces are you in? What's the behavior that's happening? What's the unspoken cultural norms in your workplace? And what are the spoken things? And how are you living up to the spoken thing? And all of that is such rich information and is just endlessly fascinating. And in, in, in my actor self, too, which is deeply engaged in understanding human behavior and where it comes from and what makes us who we are. As an actor walking through those spaces, you're constantly trying to sort of eavesdrop to build that resonant part for audience members. And, and it might just be just that little hook that's enough for them to lean into the rest of the material, right? Yeah, that's always been a big part of it is helping people hold a mirror up to the culture they're creating in whatever group or community that we're performing for and really getting inside and finding out so that we can reflect that back. The Breaking Ice team has learned that getting the culture and language right is essential for helping people see themselves and their workplace in the stories unfolding on stage. This was particularly true for their time in St. Louis. As outsiders, they knew that reflecting the stress-filled, relationship-intensive hospital environment would be a challenge a challenge that could only be met by telling stories grounded in situations and experiences that were recognizable to the audience. Thus far, the black-clad actors holding forth in the hospital multipurpose room seem to be meeting that test 
as two characters begin another exchange. Can I talk to you about the patients in room 370? Yeah, uh, quickly, go right uh, Okay, um, I, I know that there's a lot going on and, and it's a high-stress environment, but yep. they were making some comments that made me feel uncomfortable. Oh, that sucks. Uh, they, they, they were making comments that undermined my identity. Mm -hmm. uh, like, they were making racist comments yeah. toward me. Yeah, that's horrible. Uh, if you could stop over in room 700, uh, change the bedpan over there because things are getting a little intense. A woman in the front row shakes her head as two more actors saunter to the front of the stage. Hey, uh, I think you're trying to fill that new leadership position. Yeah, that's uh, right, that's right. And I just wanted to recommend, I think Nyla would be great for that job. Uh, wheelchair Nyla? Well, her last name's Johnson, but yeah. Right, 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 Nyla. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, I think she's a fabulous employee. I mean, there's a lot, she has a lot of... A lot of, uh, she inspires people, you know, they, they, and she's, she's uh, very punctual. Uh, she's, uh, I just, you know, this position really is something that needs a lot of energy, you know. It's a very fast pace, got to move on to the next thing, and I'm just, I'm not sure, you know. So, so do you not want to promote Nyla or her wheelchair? The man frowns, pivots quickly, and begins another scene with a woman who's just stepping forward. Hey, uh, I was wondering if I could uh, ask you about the, the last round of promotions. I felt like I got, I got passed up yet again, and I'm just starting to see a pattern, and I'm wondering uh, if there's anything particular yeah, well, going on. Well, here's the thing. You know, um, you, you keep applying for sort of senior-level managerial positions, yeah. and those require actually a, a decent amount of supervisory and managerial experience. So. Well, uh, Five years of leading men in uh, Afghanistan that doesn't uh, doesn't count as leadership well, experience. Uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, it translates to some degree, but there's also the issue of you know we just don't want to put you in a position that might be stressful or triggering in any kind of a way. So. Oh sure, sure, PTSD. Yeah, I don't actually suffer from PTSD, but if I did, don't you think it would be up to me to determine whether or not something was too stressful? Scenes like this come and go quickly, and true to real life, often without any resolution. The company understands that the opportunity space between a person taking in and learning a hard truth and being defensive is whisper thin. And every organization and every community is different. I mean, the goal is twofold, right? It's to help people both see themselves and um, things that are familiar and also look at the experiences of the person who's right next to them that they may not be aware of and to be able to show all of those things and how they operate together. Part two, whose story now? Starting around 2010, Breaking Ice noted a significant uptick in both requests for their services and the size of the organizations making those inquiries. This coincides with a dramatic increase in demand across society for accountability to ensure that diverse groups are represented at all economic and social levels. This pressure from workers, civil rights groups, legal advocates, unions, and organizers used the increasing power of social media to take government, corporations, and civil society to task on workplace bias and discrimination based on race, gender, sexual orientation, disability, age, religion, and the like. For Breaking Ice, this meant more work for bigger clients and audiences both at home and across the country. I think locally we're talking about Best Buy and Target, 3M, Cargill. Kurt and Noel describe this expanding universe. Delta, American, U.S. Bank, Wells Fargo. We did two Federal Reserve banks, uh, lots of big hospital systems. Health systems, absolutely. Governments, I remember doing a performance for the entire city of Denver. 
<laughs> that was 3,000 plus people. I mean, good luck facilitating that many people, but we did it. I think what's unique about breaking ice in that space is I think we have a pretty refined understanding of the work and the issues. And to be able to present that in an active way versus, you know, pulling all your employees into a training, walking them through a PowerPoint and check you've been here. It's a, you know, wildly different and a much more engaging experience because it, it asks you to participate in it in all those ways. These new opportunities also called for a more streamlined creative process. In response, they created a scripting framework that allowed them to both address issues common to many workplace environments and incorporate elements that are unique to the culture and context of specific clients like community development, banking, government, or healthcare. It also called for an understanding with clients that they were not a one-and-done solution to their DEI problems. They made it clear that breaking ice was providing a useful and powerful tool that could only be effective in combination with a long-haul systemic commitment from their hosts. I think we speak a lot of truths, but we, we do not provide answers. You know, it's, it's wisdom, not answers. And it's about elevating those submerged behaviors and practices that are, they know are living there. And I think the resonant part for them is they understand that that's, oh yeah, that is actually us. And what I often tell people is it's a, it's in the name, right? We, we break the ice and we help groups of people practice having conversations that are difficult to have and then finding their personal accountability to staying engaged in that conversation and caring about building a culture inside whatever environment they're in, using whatever resources and influence and position they can individually leverage to make the workplace more inclusive and equitable for everybody, right? These aren't just banner headline issues. This is about really how do people feel inside your work environment and what's their experience and how do you create mutual shared accountability among everyone for supporting an environment where everyone feels good and has the same level of opportunity and privilege in that environment. Yeah. And the bend in the conversation in the past 10 years is what is the value add around that, right? We're not coming in to say, let's solve racism, but we are trying to actively undo racism. But then also, what is your benefit for taking this work on in the workspace and perhaps in life? There are many ways to tell a story. Most stories, though, follow a familiar pattern, particularly in theater, which, in its most basic form, starts with literally setting the stage with the characters and setting in the first act, the introduction of conflict or dilemma in the second act, and finally, some kind of resolution in the third. As you probably already guessed, Breaking Ice doesn't exactly follow this classic structure. The reason, as Kurt just alluded to, is that they have no intention of using theater to resolve anybody's DEI problem. As such, all those frustrating, unsettled, unresolved stories in their performances are there to underscore the fact that bias and discrimination are not just periodic problems with finite solutions like budget deficits or worker shortages. In actual fact, they're not problems at all, but rather a set of ongoing, intersecting, toxic social conditions and structures that will not change for the better without a constant commitment to listening and learning and responding with accountability. 
In short, DEI work is hard, complex, and often very messy. And this reality is about to play out big time on stage in St. Louis. In this scene, all of the actors seem to be in motion at once as they rush energetically back and forth, counting and counting. And moving the chairs that were sitting on the edge of the stage. This is a breather of sorts for the audience at least. Nothing to think about here, just a frantic and purposeful scene transition and more numbers. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Once the chairs are settled in a row, right to left across the proscenium, the roiling swirl of actors slows to a kind of ritual mingling that is very familiar to the audience. This and the back and forth banter tells everyone in the room that this is a meeting of some sort. In short order, we find out that this is a convening of the hospital's diversity advisory committee. The matter at hand is a post-mortem of the hospital's annual diversity and inclusion event. After everyone sits, the tall white man on the left, who is clearly the chair, introduces himself as Dr. McElroy and asks his five colleagues to follow suit. Before anyone speaks, a young woman interjects. Can I remind uh, people who are comfortable with it to share their pronouns? After some fumbling with pronouns, we learn that besides Ben McElroy, there are DeAndre Johnson, an African-American man from the IT department, Suzanne Linden, a white woman from legal services, Ashanti Washington, an African-American nurse manager, and an HR representative, Sandra Thomas. Dr. McElroy begins by soliciting feedback on the diversity and inclusion event. The initial consensus appears to be that it went very well. Good food, good weather, and courageous conversations. Then Dr. McElroy asked Sandra about the results of a survey that was taken during the event. Uh, so we, uh, we did collect a lot of very positive feedback, uh, but we also did get some responses that we weren't quite addressing some of the more hard-hitting issues that people are facing. As a country right now, we're facing some really uh, intense and major issues. Uh, and people were feeling like uh, speaking about that and talking about that wasn't welcome here in the, in the event. Dr. McElroy sits straight up in his chair and interjects. Well, uh, before we uh, kind of go down that road, let me, let me just kind of steer us back a little bit. Uh, I'd like to focus on what's going internally, uh, not so much externally out in the world, but really, yeah, just kind of BJC. I understand that, but uh, these, these issues that we're talking about are affecting people's lives in very uh, direct and, and drastic ways, and they're not, it's not just something that's happening outside of our doors. I think that the issue here is that uh, we dive too deeply into these things, and then uh, our environment becomes divisive. You know, that's a, here's how I like to look at it. Uh, kind of bird's eye view. So once we start kind of getting into these divisive conversations, now we're, uh, you know, I'm targeting this group or I, I'm, I'm bringing this group in or, how, you know, that we've got to kind of keep away from that sort of thinking. The look on Dr. McElroy's face says, case closed, but that's not where it goes. After a few seconds of stilted silence, Ashante breaks in. I understand what you're saying. However, I find that problematic because certain groups of people are being specifically targeted and they're being affected in disproportionate ways. And us turning a completely blind eye and pretending like that's not happening isn't isn't working. 
DeAndre nods his head as he shares a story of a hospital employee who was assaulted on her way to work. Oh, she got to her stop right before she walked off the bus. Someone snatched a hijab off of her head what? and called her a terrorist. So, so that type of trauma that she had to deal with, or that, that happened to her, she had to bring that into the workplace, but then still find a way to be present. And I, I just can imagine what her day was like. Sandra yeah. leans forward, her face intense. She reports hearing many similar stories at the diversity and inclusion event one of which is about a nurse with a 10-year-old daughter who was the object of an ice raid on her fifth-grade class. And it was terrifying. It was completely traumatizing for the little girl, for the mom, especially with everything that's happening with family separations. Um, so, you know, there, there are very major things that are happening and that are affecting uh, people's lives and the community as a whole. I mean, we saw how Ferguson affected the whole community here. Suzanne, who's been fairly quiet until now, raises her hand. I feel like I, I kind of need to interject here. I, and nobody's denying that that isn't real, right? That, that those things are emotionally fraught and those are affecting people. I just, um, I'm just am not sure how advisable it is to have conversations about those kinds of things in the workplace. I mean, for, for the very reasons that, that Ben mentioned, um, that it is very divisive. I mean, I would remind us, too, that we are a nonprofit and we have lots of dealings with government and we have to be super careful not to appear partisan in any kind of way. So I, I just feel like we really need to stay neutral in this space and maybe leave those things kind of at bay. As the discussion goes back and forth, I'm reminded of my time working in Mississippi in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, or when I was doing research in Belgrade just after the NATO bombing campaign. These were situations where everybody, the healers and the sick, the helpers and the wounded, were dealing with the same persistent threats and traumas. Nobody was immune. It occurs to me that what was being confronted in this conversation was the tension between the idea of the hospital as separate and safe and the stark reality that that separation is an illusion, that the hospital community is an intrinsic and permeable part of a broader community in crisis. On stage, Ashanti is making just that point. Well, I see what you're saying, but, but we know that this becomes a public health issue. That because of social determinants, some people are more likely to have depression or anxiety or higher levels of blood pressure or higher suicide rates. And I don't think that we can afford to be neutral because we can't separate people from the bodies that we're trying to heal. DeAndre is nodding again. Yeah, I definitely have to agree with her on that. But I think that we like to only focus in on the community, but I think we kind of exclude our employee base as well. We're supposed to be providers of good health care. But how can we do that if we are not healthy ourselves? With that, he stops and looks hesitantly at his colleagues. It's clear he has something else important to say. So, um, just to share a little something about me that I know you all know about, that uh, my wife is Somali and she's here on the green card. And uh, just recently, uh, we received a phone call from Somalia telling us that our father just had a massive stroke. Uh, so rightfully so, my wife wants to go home to uh, be with her father, but there could be changes with the immigration policy like that. His hands are shaking. Everybody on stage and in the auditorium seems frozen and leaning forward at the same time. So we're stuck with this hard decision of her never seeing her father again, 
or never seeing us again. And I can't lie, I'm being very selfish because I don't want to lose my wife. She's my world. She's, and um, I just find it very hard to uh, not think about that and uh, to just ex leave that at the door before I walk to the building and just act like this robot. So I really uh, <coughs> find that really hard. After a long silence, Suzanne responds. She looks stricken. I'm, I'm really sorry, my, my heart goes out to your family. And, I, you know, honestly, I, I have to admit I'm having kind of a light bulb moment here because, you know, it honestly hadn't occurred to me that I could be sitting in the same room with a colleague who was that directly affected. I mean, yeah. It's, it's just so much, right? And it's every day, and it's coming at us from every direction. And, you know, I just get overwhelmed and feel like in order to come in and be present at work, I have to just shut it off. DeAndre turns towards Suzanne, his face a mask of sadness and anger. That's a privilege. You know, I wish I had the opportunity to just shut it off, but this is my life every day. Once again, there's quiet all around. When the members of this diversity committee sat down, the massive stage seemed to swallow the performers. Five actors, five chairs, the familiar banter were all safely small and distant. At this point, though, it all seems much closer, like the stage has melted and we're sitting across from DeAndre, Suzanne, Dr. McElroy, and the others in a conversation that has moved from business as usual to the hard-edged borders of the divided St. Louis landscape in less than a minute. When the Breaking Ice Company was doing their research at BJC, this was one of the most striking differences that emerged, namely how what was happening outside the hospital affected their individual lives. For employees of color, the toxic headlines were not distant events. Those deadly encounters with law enforcement, the racist name-calling, the anti-immigrant scapegoating were all very personal and threatening. For most white respondents, these things were concerning, disturbing, awful, but they did not intrude on their daily lives, and they certainly did not manifest as panic-inducing traffic stops, neighborhood ice raids, or roadside memorials. As such, they saw separating the disconcerting messiness taking place in the highly segregated neighborhoods surrounding the hospital from the important work taking place inside as not only preferable, but necessary for them to do their jobs. To be sure, these complications were a threat, not to them personally, but to the good order of the institution. From this perspective, out of sight, out of mind, made sense. These inside-outside parallel universes brought home the inescapable fact that whites and people of color working at BJC, living in St. Louis, in Missouri, in America, are experiencing these things very differently. For one, it is a daily lived experience. For the other, a headline about somewhere else, an abstraction. On stage, Dr. McElroy looks pained, bending forward, with his head in his hands. He's right, he's right. I don't, uh, I, I have, <laughs> if we're being honest, I've, I've, I've always had a hard time with that word, I've had a hard time with that concept, that privilege concept, you know, I didn't, I didn't come from any privilege, I don't, I don't get why, anyway, I, 
I understand the, the context in which you just used that word. And now I, you said light bulb moment. We don't, we don't have to deal with certain issues that other folks do, and it is specifically just because we're white people. I mean, that's just, let's just be straight about that. Um, you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard. These conversations are difficult because I, I feel anymore like the more that we focus on diversity, uh, uh, the less my, uh, for instance, my opinion seems to matter. You know, as a white man, uh, now I'm irrelevant. I, I, that's what it feels like sometimes, and I know that's doesn't really anyway I, I see all of the same news that all of you see and, and see what's going on in the world and I, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do I don't know what to say I don't know how to change anything I don't know where to start so that's where I, that's where I am Sandra looks down the row of chairs at the administrator well, I think having these kinds of conversations is exactly where you start and you're wondering where you fit into this now and it's it's making sure that other people's voices are heard and listening to those voices, making space for that. That's, that's your role now, and I think this is exactly how we begin. Everybody seems to be nodding, except Suzanne, who has another more personal point that to make. Sounds great, and I completely agree with that intellectually, and I guess because we're being really honest. I, I also have to admit that when opportunities to engage this way come up in you know the real world settings, I often don't, out of fear, I guess. Ashanti turns in her chair and speaks directly to Suzanne. I think it's important to name what you're afraid of. What are you afraid of? I mean, I guess I'm afraid of offending you. I'm afraid of being wrong. In that moment, all of the actors Rise and stand facing the audience. Suzanne continues, but her stance is different, more present. I'm afraid if I stand up and speak out, it's co-opting somebody else's voice. I'm afraid if I don't stand up and speak out, it's a tacit endorsement of the status quo. I'm afraid I'm racist in ways I can't or won't see. And I'm afraid there's actually way more than I even know to be afraid of. Now, as Dr. McElroy steps forward to speak, it's clear that the doctor is gone. He's an actor, but he's not acting, and he's breaking what is referred to as the fourth wall, the invisible barrier at the front of the stage that separates the make-believe world of theater from the real world. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being perceived as ignorant. I'm afraid of being perceived as anything that ends in IST or phobic. I'm afraid of being on the receiving end of someone's justified anger. I'm afraid of being linked somehow in someone else's eyes to these super rich, powerful white people way over my head just because I'm a white man. And I'm afraid no matter what we do, any of this, it's not going to make a difference. Listening to him, I'm acutely aware of how much I've come to dislike his character, actually all of his characters. But now, hearing him describe his fears, his paralysis, I feel like he's been reading my mind. Ashanti is next. I am afraid. I am afraid that myself or my siblings will lose our lives to a set of sirens, bullets, and a badge simply for existing. I am afraid that I will never find a place where I can be both queer and black without feeling like a unicorn. 
I'm afraid that no matter how much I accomplish, I will always be seen as an exception and never as proof of possibility for my people. I'm afraid that I don't have people, that because my mom is a white redhead and I grew up in the Midwest in the suburbs, that I'm too white for black people, but because my dad is a Kenyan immigrant and my skin is the color of his childhood home in Nairobi, that I am too black for white people, and I am afraid that my skin is just light enough to make me feel less dangerous to you. Now Sandra edges I'm forward. Afraid. I'm afraid of representing a struggle that I have never lived. I'm afraid of people thinking that I don't recognize my own privilege, and I'm afraid of those people maybe being right. I'm afraid that I'm neither from here nor from there, and I'm afraid the longer I stay here, I'll start forgetting there. DeAndre is the last to step afraid. up. I am afraid for the life of my unborn son. I am afraid to wear my hoodies. I am afraid that I don't have a voice. I am afraid that if someone asked me for my opinion, that I wouldn't have anything intelligent to say. I am afraid of flashing lights in my rearview mirror. I'm afraid of one shot from a barrel of a gun The actress playing Suzanne takes another step forward, this time with even more power and presence. I will not hurt you if you will help me not to. I will study your confusions until I understand if you will realize. She turns to the whole ensemble. I glance behind me at the vast room. There must be two, three hundred people sitting, listening, waiting to begin the daily drama that defines their hospital workplace. The performance has probably gone on longer than most expected, but the audience is engaged. No arms crossed, no glowing phones, no ceiling stares, no furtive whispering. They know it's not over, and they're ready for what's next. So... What's next at BJC and for Breaking Ice is where we travel in our next episode. In it, the performance's last act helps the company answer the questions they face every time they step out on the fragile limb of the relationship they forged with their audiences. Did these characters and stories land as true or at least true enough for them to ask themselves the questions rising up? Is this our story and if it is, What's my part in it? And most importantly, what have I learned and what is my responsibility? The powerful conclusion of the performance and the reflections of some of the players on and off the stage will also shine a light on the challenges faced by a big system like BJC when the breaking ice curtain falls. If heads and hearts have been moved, even a bit, how can that help them become the healthier, more equitable healing community they aspire to be? Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape spring forth from the head, heart, and hands of the maestro Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org. Our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOP 235. So, until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. And rest assured... This episode has been 100% human.